This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to ifreakshow.com slash codeschool. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 78 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Pete Hodgson. Hello from Berkeley, California. Andrew Madsen. Hi from Salt Lake City. Orlando Brewington. Hello from North Carolina. James Zuber. Hello from Minnesota, IA. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest. And that is Jay Thrash. Hello, also from North Carolina. Do you want to give us a brief intro since you haven't been on the show before? Sure. So, like I said, I'm Jay Thrash. I live here in North Carolina. And for the past four, I think it's been about four or five years now, I've been involved with uh, iOS development. Prior to that, I did a lot of web-based development as well as some... uh, Way back in the day, I, w- I worked for a couple different gaming companies, so I've done kind of the gamut of all kinds of development. Whatever looks interesting is where I typically fall, so. Cool. So uh, this week we're going to be talking about skinny controllers. <laughs> yeah, it's all about putting them on a paleo diet. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> if they're skinny controllers, they have no resemblance to my genes. <laughs> Yeah, so the whole skinny controller thing actually came about for me, I guess, about a year or so ago. I'd been working on a number of fairly large-scale iOS apps and was finding it it was getting more and more difficult to manage them and just deal with a multitude of, of the view controllers that we use to create those apps. And, um, you know, although we felt like we were following kind of the the conventions of the day, it just felt like there was something wrong with what we were doing. So uh, I started, took a step back and was looking at some of the other ideas that people had about dealing with how to remove responsibility from view controllers. And and since then, I've done a a few talks, both at Cocoa Heads and at 360 iDev out in Denver on some of the findings that I've run into during that time. So that's pretty cool because they talk about, Apple gives you this nice diagram for MVC and how you're supposed to write apps, but they don't tell you Hey, what do you do? We have to talk to a network or different things. They give you kind of a simple template, but they don't really explain what else you need to do. They just kind of, here you go. Here's how you write your apps. 
Exactly. And I think the kind of the problem or kind of the, the trap we all fall into is that so much of the example code, so many of the templates that you get out of the box with Xcode, in some ways start you down the wrong path. You know, like the one that I can think of in particular, the ones that are based on the uh, table view controllers. They typically have the view controller is going to be responsible for being both the delegate and the data source of that table view. And over time, you'll find out that that may not necessarily be where you want to place those responsibilities. I can definitely see that. I mean, you know, you get examples and they're trying to isolate one concept. So, for example, the UI table view. And so they go out of their way to actually put in, here's how you get the view. And so, yeah, they just stick the data right in there because then all you have to do is worry about, you know, integrating with the view controller. You know, so your next stage is, yeah, I'm just going to put my actual data in here. And and it makes sense in the context of yes. those little examples, right? Like if, if I was, if I was building a trivial app like that, then it would, I would argue it probably does make sense to just throw it in the view controller. The problem is that there aren't that many example apps that are large scale or at least the scale of apps that we build as kind of professional software people. Yes, I agree. I think that it's determining when do you take the step away from the way the examples show you how to do it, you know, it, and hopefully you realize when you need to do that far, far, uh, way before you get into a position where, you know, you've created a code base that is, has become unmaintainable in a sense. I've had the fortune uh, a few months ago to begin work on a new project. So I've done everything I can to make sure that I kind of practice what I preach in a sense. So all of these, talks that I've done and uh, some of the articles that I've, I've pointed to on my blog and on Twitter, I've tried to follow those examples. And I've found that our production has been far greater than what we were able to do on some of the previous projects that we've been working on. So I've already kind of out of the gate seen some, some great improvements in just our coding efficiency and our production as a team when we try to move responsibility out of our view controllers and into other objects. So let's step back a bit and let's talk about what type of things that we typically put in our view controllers that we typically say, here you go, view controller, handle this type of stuff. Well, I think that probably the first thing that comes to mind and the one that would be the easiest to move out of your view controllers are data sources. So data sources for either table views or collection views. Under the covers, those are typically just going to be some kind of collection-based accessors, right? So they might be backed by a simple array, they might be backed by a web service or core data or something like that. And if you can move those out of the view controller and into standalone classes that implement the data source protocol, then you'll find that not only do your view controllers, you know, they they lose a lot of weight, they become, you know, when you're looking at the code for your view controllers, they become more about dealing with the view lifecycle and less about dealing with data. And you'll find that unit testing those data source classes becomes far easier because in the past, in order to test your data sources, you actually had to instantiate and kind of build up a view controller just so you could test those things. And because they're in a separate class now that's independent of the view hierarchy, they become much easier to kind of build up, mock out, and then tear down when the test is done. So I think another advantage of this approach, which is one I've used especially recently, is that a lot of times it seems to me that an app might have tables that are very similar 
if not showing the same data in different parts of the app. And this way you can reuse a lot of that logic without duplicating it across two different view controls or doing some kind of more complicated class hierarchy where you have a base view controller subclass that to get custom behavior. This turns out to be a lot cleaner for that kind of situation too. Absolutely. Yes. Likewise for testing as well, right? Like if you can pull out this code from a view controller and put it into a little plain old Ponzo. Was that, I think someone referred to these as Ponzos the other day. Plain old NS objects. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not my terminology. I think it, that was Conrad Dahl uh, on a previous episode talked about Ponzo. Anyway. Um, Here, Ponzo. Here. Yeah. <laughs> Those guys are way easier to test, right? Those objects are way, way easier to test in isolation. And because you can just construct, you have control, control over their lifecycle. They're really easy to instantiate with fake versions of dependencies rather than having to, well, a lot of times with frameworky things like view controllers, it's quite hard to stand them up in isolation because normally you're not the person creating them. Normally the framework is creating these objects for you. So that's another. Another pitch, another benefit I give to people is testability. Right. And, you know, up until, say, iOS 7, I think a lot of us understood the view lifecycle really well. But with iOS 7 and iOS 8, the way that view transitions have changed, those view lifecycles have changed in a sense where you cannot, you know, at some points you can have kind of multiple views saying that they're actually appearing. And so if you're basing all your tests off of things that were embedded in view controllers, it, it becomes more difficult to continue testing in those newer versions of the iOS. I'm wondering at what stage does it make sense to move things out? I mean, if you're hard coding some, you know, maybe an array of dictionaries, or you're something like that into your view controller, do you want to move it out right then? Or is that a little bit premature? I would say the earlier the better because, yeah, even if you are hard coding it, like you're, it's backed by some kind of hard coded array, uh, once you move it out into another object, you can probably more easily change what the backing is going to be. You can move it from that hard-coded array to maybe a dynamically generated array that you get by, you know, parsing a JSON file or something like that. And those changes are now going to be completely encapsulated inside of this, this Ponzo that's implementing the data source protocol. And your view controller can just happily, you know, go on its merry way. It just gets assigned a, a data source that, you know, or it the table view gets assigned a data source that just has a different backing store. Can, can nope. I get a definition or at least an explanation really quickly? When you're talking about the data store API, what exactly are you talking about there? Well, I'm just referring to like the table view data source protocol, okay. right? So the, you know, the protocol that, that you're supposed to implement as far as, you know, self a row at index path, the number okay. of, you know, sections, the number of rows in a section, things like that. Now, would you recommend sort of in this, when you're extracting this data store and having a class, a data source class that's going to be accessed by the view controller and with the possible option of, of changing that backing store, are you saying that at that point you probably still want to have two classes, one being the data source class and another being the actual instance of a backing store or you wait for that? I guess it just depends on how complex the actual, the, the data store implementation is going to be. I think for the most part, at least for some of the apps I've been working on recently, we usually have kind of a set of common 
classes that deal with data, and it's just a matter of applying that protocol on top of them so they can adapt and be used as data source delegates for mostly collection views. Okay. Are there other instances that you see where people implement this that aren't, for example, the table view examples or other collections that this really applies to or that people tend to fall into this trap? Well, sure. So just moving away from the specific example of the data sources, I think that one good place to look is just looking at the Cocoa framework and figure out where where are the places that the framework is actually separating dependencies and a lot of, or sorry, I should say responsibilities. And a lot of those points of separation are typically delineated by protocols. So if you look at a, a view controller that's got like a table view or a collection view, you typically need a table view data source as well as a table view delegate. There are some responsibilities of those delegate classes that don't necessarily need to be in your view controller. They could be in separate classes that could be reused across view controllers. There was a really good article that I ran across. It's called Single Responsibility Principle in iOS. It was on the, I think it was the Bendy Works blog. And he actually, the, the, the author of this article actually took his foray into this realm of how he structures his apps to the extreme. So he was saying that when he builds his apps, or at least he tries to build them in such a way that the view controllers are only limited to managing the view lifecycle of the subviews that it manages and anything like data sources, delegates, IB outlets and IB actions are moved into other classes. I haven't been able to go to that extreme, but it is an interesting way of structuring your code. So there's a similar issue in the Ruby world with, or in the Rails world with controllers being too fat and needing to go on a diet. And one of the things that she advocates for is none of the methods in your view controller should be more than one or two lines long or two or three lines long. And essentially they're just, they're just a, a traffic cop routing stuff through to the appropriate place. So I guess that's kind of a similar, similar philosophy, right? Where you just want the view controller to be doing the bare minimum that it has to do as a view controller and everything else you're, you're just delegating to the appropriate thing. Right. Well, and more recently on the Ruby Rogues podcast, we talked to Martin Fowler about refactoring and he pointed out that the whole point of refactoring is to make it so that you can increase the speed with which you develop your code. And so by going ahead and making a lot of these changes, what you wind up doing is you, you know, you make it simple enough to where you can look at it and know what you're going to change and why you're going to change it instead of having to figure out what's going to be affected by the decisions that you make and things like that. And so, you know, it, it really makes sense if you're looking at it from, you know, single responsibility principle or some of these other ideas that if you move all of the data munging out, then it's easy to see what the view controller is actually doing and to know where to look to figure out what's going on with your data. And so then you can move ahead quickly if you have to refactor or if you have to add functionality later on. Right. Because a lot of times, at least what I found working on iOS apps is that a lot of times the data sets can be pretty well known ahead of time. You're going to, you're going to be interacting with some kind of web service or something like that. And it has a pretty well-defined interface, but the structure of the application is what's going to change over time. We decide, Oh, we don't like the layout of this view controller. Let's move some things around. And if you've got your view controllers built in such a way where they're, you know, responsible for so many different things, it becomes very difficult to know 
where are the responsibilities related to just the view hierarchy management and how can I pull those out if I want to restructure the UI? So I agree with what everyone's saying that we should keep our view controllers light as possible. But let's talk a bit, a little bit about specifics because view controllers get huge because we do a ton of different things in there. You know, we've got our actions, our outlets, we're doing animations, we're showing things, we're hiding things, we're formatting strings, doing all sorts of these things. How, I mean, what are some ways that we can kind of move the stuff out of the view controller? How does that work? Yeah. So one of the points that I made at a talk that I did at 360 was to kind of turn the table a bit on kind of the unfortunate nickname that a lot of people have given the framework of, you know, MVC means massive view controller. <laughs> but, you know, I what, like yeah. But <laughs> what I was saying, no, actually, you know, if we call it massive view controller, then really what we're doing is focusing too much on the symptoms and not the cause. So really it, a more accurate term would be, you know, misused view controllers or misunderstood view controllers. And, you know, exactly what you were saying, you know, we need to find ways to identify responsibility that really isn't the only reason that it's in the view controllers be just because at the time we were creating it, it seemed like a easy place to put it. But as far as the functionality is concerned, there's no reason why it belongs inside the view controller. And so there's another uh, really good article that Chris Idoff, if you've ever read any of the uh, ObCIO articles, the it's like that online magazine ObCIO. <laughs> I can't I can't yes, pronounce someone it. To, yeah, it's to easier to to read in my uh, address bar than it is to say out loud. Yeah, we'll we'll put a link in the show notes. <laughs> he had a really good talk. Well, there's actually I'll take a step back. There's an entire issue collection of articles and issue. I think it was might have been issue number one of the website focus specifically on the concept of building light what you they call just lighter stole my controllers. Pick. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Must um, have been a good one then, huh? Yeah. And then later he followed that up with a post on his own blog on the concept of what he called intentions. And this idea of intentions is one way of moving kind of I like to look at them as these functional encapsulations of almost like business logic that you can pull out of your view controller and then reuse them across other view controllers. And it's doing things like being outlets for different uh, controls or different views and then dealing with how the, uh, you know, like when the user is typing in information in a text field or something like that, what type of validations do you need to run? Now, there's no reason why those val that validation logic has to be in the view controller. It could be encapsulated into an intention. That intention could be the one that is receiving the IB outlet actions and, and maybe even conforming to the UI text view or text field uh, delegate methods. And so as the user is typing in information, it could be running through your validation logic and either allowing or disallowing what the user typed in. And all that's happening completely independent of the actual view controller that hosts that text view. So how does this class get wired up? Typically, we've got our outlets, our actions, we just drag them on the view controller, and we use them from there. At this point, we're creating a new class that receives these things and kind of spits out actions, delegates, or notifications or something. How do we wire this up? So the, the secret sauce in wiring up the intentions is when you go down to the library of objects that you can put into your storyboard scenes, something that a lot of people overlook is there's a very simple NS object that you can drag into your view controller scenes. Then you can change the class 
for that object to be a, an instance of, of one of your intention classes. And then you just design the interface for the intention so that it has the correct either IB outlets, um, the IB uh, actions or what have you. And then you can actually wire those up right there in the storyboard so that the you can look at the storyboard scene and actually see uh, kind of almost get a visual representation of not only what objects make up the view controller, but also what logic and functionality is driving the interaction between those those objects. Okay, well, that's very cool. I never thought about kind of doing the storyboard nib way of doing that. Generally, when I've kind of transferred responsibilities, I'm hand refactoring, creating classes, and passing in info. But you can do it from Interface Builder, so that's pretty cool. You can, and the article that Chris wrote it was what deals with that. So when he goes through the example of pulling some logic out of your view controller, putting it in an intention, he goes through the steps of showing you how you can wire that up inside the storyboard, and then it makes your code much easier because you're not even having to to deal with that in code at all. It's all handled in the view controller scene itself. Yeah, and so this this technique is also one that can be used, of course, for any really any object you want to put in a view controller. Yes, or I mean, in a nib or a storyboard, and so it's it's good for the like the table data sources that we were talking about earlier too, because then all you have to do is wire up an outlet to the table view, and and then wire up the table and data source back to the table controller object. I think it is kind of a powerful, nice way to structure things using Interface Builder that a lot of people don't know about. Or haven't used before. Right. You know, and in this example, it was, of course, because it was a, a short article, the example he gives is a little bit, you know, simplified. But the intention that he created was one that I think would automatically, it did something to the string, like it automatically uppercased whatever you typed in there, or maybe it reversed it or something like that. But what's nice is you can just look at that scene in the uh, storyboard. And if the intentions are named correctly, you can very easily just see, oh, Anything that gets assigned to these fields gets run through this intention that's going to perform some set of logic on it. And so you don't have to worry about always having to look at both the code and your storyboard to figure out what's going to happen when the user's interacting with a, a given view controller. Now, is that a strict one-to-one relationship, or can you have multiple intentions on a particular UI control? You can have multiple intentions, but I think in order to do that, what you would have to build up is a kind of a intention kind of multiplexer, so to say, you know, so that, you know, because the things like the delegates, an object can only have one delegate assigned to it. Right. So if there's something that you want to drive based on delegate responsibility, then that delegate could be assigned to like an intention multiplexer object, which could then fire off that same behavior to multiple intentions. Okay. Like an example I could think of is that maybe you've got a screen with multiple fields and and a submit button or something like that, and the user can't hit the submit button until all the fields are full, and then certain fields have validation that you want to run. So you're going to have a combination of intentions running against those fields so that one intention wants to be able to see all of the fields to make sure all of the data is ready so that it enables the OK button or the submit button. But then you've also got other intentions that are dealing with, you know, what's a valid string that can go in this field? Is this an email string, uh, an email field? You know, make sure whatever the user types in is a valid email address. Correct. I, I have to admit that it can get a little bit complicated depending on how things are structured. So you just have to take it kind of one step at a time. 
So intentions, something like validation would be an intention. Would you consider a model something different, or would that also be kind of a just a different case of an intention? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, there certainly are arguments that can be made for placing validation logic in the model itself so that you don't have to worry about who's modifying an object that the object knows how to handle its validation. So maybe the intention is simply just passing the call directly into the model to ask, hey, model, are you valid? You know what I mean? So the the actual logic that, that does the validation isn't in the intention. Um, it's actually in the model, and the intention is just there to to kind of wire things together. Personally, my opinion is that most of the time, validation probably should be d- done in the model for the reason you describe. And I think there's something in key value coding that a lot of people don't really know about or use, but KVC actually includes validation methods. So you can implement validate value for key error, basically, in your model object. And, and they're not invoked automatically, at least not in most cases. They are in core data. And also, if you're writing an OS ten app and you're using bindings, you can set bindings up to automatically validate newly entered values and call those validation methods. But anyway, the, the whole point is Apple really actually already has sort of a convention and a way for doing validation on properties in a model. And I, I personally, I, I like to use those. I think they work work out pretty well. Mm-hmm. So that makes me wonder where to put this code that is currently in our view model. So we've got these fat view models and we want to put them on a diet. Sorry, not view models, view controllers. Sorry. And so we want to move that code from the view controllers somewhere. One of the obvious places that we start to think about is moving it into the, into models in, instead. My concern with that is we end up with fat models. <laughs> and I bring context from other places. So for me, this is something, again, the Rails community went through was, you know, view controllers are too, are too fat. Let's put them on a diet. Let's put everything in the models. And then it's like, oh, well, actually, turns out those model classes are too fat as well. So where's that line, I guess, for different folks? Because f- for me, I'm super nervous about putting stuff in the model that doesn't really belong to like the con, whatever it is that the model represents. If the model represents a user, I want methods on that model that are kind of domain concepts for a user and stuff like, even stuff like validation. It makes me a little bit nervous because it's not really a domain concept. It's more like a, it's something to do with the presentation layer, right? Like the only reason you'd want to do validation on something is if you're reading it from input, not if you're reading it from core data, for example. Yeah, I think yeah. if you do the client-side MVC patterns like Apple Rides, they don't talk about a lot of the edge cases. You know, they get different domains, the Ruby way of doing a model, or it's just specifically you know domain knowledge, which is kind of the DDD approach. Probably comes from Java, C Sharp, that type of thing. It's not like Andrew's talking about, yeah, validation is a little bit part of the model, so it, it, it makes sense. But I think one of the problems with kind of the plus-size models, as Orlando <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the back channel, you know, the te- temptation is to move everything into the model, and which makes them too large, like networking calls, that type of thing. And, but yeah, I agree. Those things probably don't belong in a model. I'd like to see kind of domain concepts, things that you're probably your product owners, your business users will understand. Right. So I've just invented a new meme, which I'm going to try and popularize. This is the first start of that. I'm going to start talking about MVC plus P, where (laughs) the P is just plain old X objects, so Ponzos or Poros or Pojos or whatever. Like To me, the big thing that people don't 
get about MVC and these architectural patterns is you don't have to put everything in the M, the V, or the C. It's not like which of these is the right bucket. Sometimes you make a new bucket. You know. Yes, I would agree. I think that's probably one of the a really important point to get across because when I started. I did assume that I had to sort of try to fit everything into one of those three categories. And it's very liberating to not have to think that way. And it's funny, like one of the, this is totally off topic of iOS, but this is one of the big issues that people had with Backbone in the, in JavaScript land was Backbone had these models, views and, and collections and people just shoved everything in the view mm-hmm. because they thought that they had to make a view for everything. And what they could have done is just made controllers that weren't derived from some framework class they're just they are a thing it's if they embody the concept of a controller but they don't need to derive from like you know ui view controller or whatever in the well at least in the context of backbone so i think the same is very true in ios land we can have for example a service gateway which represents you know some remote service that we want to interact with and just because we don't have a base class to derive that from doesn't mean that it's not a kind of a a bucket that we can put things into i'm really glad that you brought up that point of getting stuck in the three buckets of MVC because that I think is what once you break out of that mold and realize that you don't have to structure everything in one of those three categories it's what opens you up to realize that these other kind of paradigms exist and you can leverage them to make the code that much easier to to build and maintain a topic I wanted to bring up that kind of something we were talking about earlier when we were talking about setting up intentions. And that is, what do you think about this question between doing your your user interfaces in storyboards or nibs versus setting them all up in code? I, I mean, this is a debate that kind of comes up in, in the iOS community every now and then, and people feel strongly on both sides. So I'm curious to know what you think and how that relates to this skinny view controllers and keeping classes small in general. No, I never really considered those two, what the overlap of those two arguments would be. I've definitely seen a huge change in my own opinions regarding those topics over the past couple years. Um, I definitely, like I, I use nibs pretty regularly, but when storyboards were first introduced, I thought they were a great idea, but I did not use them for at least the first year or so that they were available. But it's becoming more and more obvious that leveraging storyboards is something that we just going to have to become accustomed to in iOS development because the storyboard editors and viewers are becoming more and more powerful and they allow you to access and manage things like auto layout and size classes. And now that we have so many devices with so many different screen sizes, having the ability to preview those layouts on the fly becomes a huge advantage. So as much as part of me wants to be kind of uh, pure in the sense of if I, you know, putting everything in code means there's only one place I have to go, managing view code is very can be very tedious. Managing the location and the layout of all your frames and things like that, that requires a lot of code. It becomes code that's very repetitive, so it's very easy for you to just look at a big block of code and think that everything's okay, but, you know, there's a lot of you know, all the, the methods that you call to, to say stand up your auto layout constraints. There's very little signal to a lot of noise because the method names are and the, the parameter names are so large. It's very easy to look at a block of code and think that everything's okay, but it's not until later that you realize, oh, I transposed a couple of digits, but I just couldn't see that because of all the noise that surrounds it. 
Yeah, so I I like that take. My thinking was, and I, I have a pretty strong opinion about this topic, but without going into that, my take was that usually that kind of manual UI setup code goes in the view controller, and I've worked on projects where just as a percentage of the line in view controllers, that code that was being used to do UI is is a huge percentage, and I think it contributes to making view controller code unreadable and hard to just hard to get through and also i think like you said with multiple that we have now sometimes that code gets really unwieldy my personal opinion is is essentially on the side of nibs and storyboards uh, especially when we're talking about keeping view controllers small yeah when when the storyboards were first introduced i loved the concept because at the time having everything spread out across multiple nibs made it very difficult to, just to get kind of a 30,000-foot view of what your application looked like, what was its navigational structure. And right out of the gate, storyboards were kind of this eye-opening feature within Xcodes where you could see, you know, potentially, you could see, like, the entire landscape of your application. In practice, like a lot of new technology, the first couple of iterations of storyboards, there were some issues and limitations that you had to deal with but at least for me, the recent implementations of storyboards, I've been very happy with them. And a lot of the issues I had using them early on uh, have been rectified. And so most of the projects I work on today rely pretty heavily on storyboards. I do say that there is one thing that still bugs me about storyboards and Xcode's proclivity to always want to make a change in my storyboard files, even though I didn't actually change anything in them. So it seems like anytime I go to commit new changes, there's always like a one-line change, some kind of random one-line change in a storyboard that I don't know why Xcode wanted to do it, but it felt like it needed to go in and kind of diddle with that that storyboard while it was open. Yeah, I've learned to put the storyboard to the background if you're doing any code changes right. or messing with Git or you're doing re- resets. Yeah, there, I, I spend a lot of the time discarding <laughs> discard change, discard change, discard change. Yeah, I've had that same problem, and it, it happens with nibs, too. It's just some interface builder thing. I think basically the main thing is that every time you open a nib, if it was most recently opened in an older version of interface builder, it will automatically update the XML to right. say right. which version it was last opened in, which is not very useful, really, but anyway, pretty well, annoying. It, the other huge uh, change that happened behind the scenes that was a big uh, improvement was now that the nibs and the storyboards are almost human readable now, whereas before it was very kind of esoteric XML, and it made it very difficult when you had to merge changes to figure out what was going on. And at least now that XML schema has changed to the point where you can almost visually in your mind figure out what the storyboard is laying out because the elements and the tags are much more logical. That's interesting because, as you said, like when the storyboards came out, a big drawback to them was if you're working with a team and you had to merge the storyboard together, it was very easy to get yourself into a nightmare situation. And I've taken storyboards out of projects because there's three or four people working on them and we had merge headaches, merge nightmares. Are you saying that's much improved in practice? It is. And, you know, one of the techniques that we've employed to help alleviate that is trying to break down the overall application into multiple storyboards. So typically we'll have storyboards related to kind of a like a task or some kind of workflow within the application so that we're not l- always editing one gigantic storyboard that is the entire app. We can kind of delegate responsibility across the team and we know, oh, Jay's working on kind of the the messaging part of the app right now. So 
if you need to do something on that storyboard, make sure you coordinate that with Jay. Likewise, somebody else working on maybe a setting screen or something like that. It makes it very easy for the, everyone to work independently and not have to worry about colliding or conflicting change sets. Agreed. That's one of the first changes that we made once we started running into some difficulties as the application started to grow and our usage of storyboards started to increase in order to, to minimize conflicts, to split them out in a workflow-oriented manner. So we've talked about intentions, models. One thing that kind of tripped me up when trying to figure out how to get this stuff out of my view controller was like network calls, you know, having a service type layer. Where would you put something like that? Let's see. So network calls, I typically have those set up kind of underneath my data model layer. So the classes that manage access to the kind of overall data store for the application, those are where the network calls get encapsulated. And then they're done in such a way that, you know, with now these days with block-based APIs, it makes it very easy to build up asynchronous-based interfaces. And so if you think about that from the get-go, about how you're going to access data, if you do it in a block-based manner to begin with, that even if initially you're backing everything by hard-coded arrays or data that you're loading from a hard-coded text file, even when you go back later and actually change all that to maybe go out and fetch stuff using AF networking or what have you, because you've got that asynchronous block-based API in place, it simply just works. It continues to work. So would this object be a Ponzo, or is this something that lives in your model? I try to keep them separate from the model itself. So I'll have a class that can issue the request and based on the response, construct the actual model object. A library that I've been using a lot lately for for making that conversion is uh, Mantle. I don't know if, if, if any of you have used uh, the Mantle library, but that one's a really nice library for defining a dictionary of how the uh, fields from, say, a JSON response map to properties on your model objects, and it can handle all the transformations for you. And one way to structure that so that you can have the transformations take place in a manner that's independent of your model objects, so if you want to keep your model objects pure, one way we've done that is by making the doing the transformations using or encapsulating those within uh, categories. So the, the methods related to the conversions and saving are in a category, but the, the model object itself is kind of ignorant of how all that happens. Yeah, this looks, this looks neat. This is, this is, I think, pretty similar to how I approach this kind of stuff as well, of building these things that I call service gateways. I don't know if they have a better name, but essentially an object that is responsible for transforming like you talk to it in terms of domainy things, like give me a list of users or give me a list of friends of this user or whatever, and it does all of the networky stuff and then gives you back domainy things using something like Mantle to do the the transformations between technical JSONy stuff and interesting domainy stuff. Right, and it also, at least in my experience, it's great because it's another place where you can kind of replace the actual real data and plug in fake yeah. data for testing and stuff like that. And as far as the application is concerned, it's oblivious to the fact that, oh, this data is coming from a test file versus this data is actually coming from our production servers. Yep, and the flip side of that is also true. You can test those service gateway things in integration, actually talking to a real service and make sure they work, but without having to pull in the rest of your application. So you can just kind of 
drive them directly to check that you're integrating correctly with the backend system without needing to run the whole app or to, to kind of do all of the all of the higher level stuff that your application's doing. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty solid pattern. I had a project I worked on recently where I broke out things kind of as you said, where something goes to the network, gets it, creates the model, and the model just goes on its way. Sometimes you might think that, well, I mean, your service isn't going to change, things like that. But you know, sometimes things do change. The service might change, might point to somewhere else. They might want to use one of those parse Windows Azure mobile service backends where you have an API. So the, how you actually get the data can change. And I was able to make the change to that one area without really affecting the rest of the app. So it's a pretty solid pattern. Yeah. The, the only reservation I have with these things is if your domain, if the way that you think about things on the inside the mobile app doesn't line up with the way the API works, then sometimes it's not enough just to be able to map kind of the names of things in JSON to the names of things in your object. Sometimes there's like, you need to kind of convert two API kind of concepts into one user concept. So let's say, for example, you have a user and he has an address, and inside of your app, the address is just like part of the user object, but in the API, it's represented as two separate distinct things. Sometimes it falls apart. Sometimes this direct mapping, this object-to-object mapping falls apart, and you need to kind of put something in the middle that can convert kind of API domain stuff into models inside of your application. But I guess that's a problem that you wait to have rather than kind of over-engineering up front. Well, the other thing, though, in my opinion, is that this is also one of its strengths by putting it into its own object or model or whatever that handles, you know, providing this to the controller itself is that then you can encapsulate all that logic. And so it's a place where you can handle that. You can handle caching. You can handle these other things. You can break them out into their own responsibilities, their own classes. But because it's all in one place, it, it kind of handles its own stuff so that you don't have to worry about it further up the line. Or did I miss something? No, yeah, no. I'm I'm nodding my head in mute. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing we kind of touched on this a little bit, but I guess the last thing that I've been mulling over while we've been talking through this is how if I'm walking into an application today, or I'm suddenly I've seen the light and I'm and I'm in a bit of a bad state today, and I've got a bunch of logic in my view controllers. Is there some strat some migration strategies that I can take for kind of where do I get started with this? It's all a bit overwhelming and scary. How do I get from where I am today to where I want to be? How do I get started on this diet? Like, what's a good dieting plan, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> One of the techniques that I like to use, and it's something I touched on a little bit earlier, is just to look at where the framework that we use already kind of naturally defines these separations of responsibility. So there's a reason why when Apple was designing the framework that, say, for a uh, table view controller, they didn't put all the responsibilities of being the delegate and the data source right there in that class. They created protocols that you have to implement. And so if you're going to then turn around and reassign those responsibilities back into the view controller, I think that's a good opportunity to take a step back and look at it and say, is there, you know, why am I pulling this responsibility back in when just based on how this API is structured, I could put that responsibility somewhere else. And then for view controllers, especially, I think, although that article about single responsibility principle goes very far to the extreme, I think that it is good in the sense that if it's something that's outside of the, just the simple view lifecycle responsibility, 
that's another thing that you could look at and say, does this actually belong in my view controller? Should I be putting it somewhere else? Should I encapsulate it because it's, you know, functionality that simply doesn't belong here? Or is it functionality that I've identified as being present in other view controllers? And by pulling that out, I can now share that and maintain it in a single place. So I think those are the kind of the two techniques that I like to use is look at where data sources delegate. So those kinds of protocols come into play and then anything that's outside the standard view lifecycle responsibilities take a deep look and see, is this something that is very tightly coupled to my view controller so it makes sense that it should stay there? Or is this something that uh, can be moved out and then reused if I want to reuse it? So another thing that I seek frequently in a view controller, you've got like appearance type code. You're setting colors, setting background colors, setting fonts. How do we get that stuff out of our view controller? I guess in my own experience, most of that because I use storyboards, a lot of that gets handled kind of automatically because I'm creating them in the, I'm defining them in my storyboards. Uh, you can also use, I guess, to some extent, the appearance classes, the UI appearance classes that you can set up in your, uh, your application delegate to define kind of application wide styles. I don't know. I, I have seen other apps. I know that, uh, some parts of Vesper that note-taking app that um, Brent Simmons helped build with Dave Wiskus and John Gruber. He kind of open-sourced their appearance. He has like a, I think it was either a JSON or just a simple plist-based appearance framework that he can define everything in this plist file and then apply it to the classes and it automatically deals with things like fonts and colors and stuff like that so they can manage all of that in one file and it's something that a, even a non-programmer can do, and then it gets applied application-wide when the application is built. And that's actually something that we do. We actually uh, use a created a, a theme class that makes extensive use of the uh, UI appearance protocol to uh, handle that. Yeah, you can get most of the way with UI appearance, but you have these occasional edge cases like something like UI table view does not conform to the protocol, so you have to do some other weird things. But you can get a lot of mileage onto UI appearance. Yeah, I think that the UI appearance does have a lot more power than people give it credit for. All right, let's go ahead and do some picks. Pete, do you want to start us off with picks? You always pick me first, and I and I always struggle because someone else picked my first pick. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I guess I will have a brief selection of picks. Um, my first pick is a previous episode of the iFreak show. So we did an episode on Viper which is kind of this pattern or architectural pattern or whatever that kind of lines up quite a lot with a lot of the things we've been discussing. Really interesting. I really enjoyed that episode. It kind of definitely gave me a lot of things to think about. So if, if this discussion has been interesting to folks, then I recommend following it up with that Viper episode. Episode 64, there'll be a link in the show notes for that. Um, my second pick is a book called Clean Code by Bob Martin, Uncle Bob, and he talks a lot about all of these kind of ideas of separation of responsibilities and not putting too much stuff in one place and all that kind of stuff. So that's a good source of more information about this stuff. And then my third pick, a fun pick, I guess, is a service called PubNub. I've been playing with this recently, and it's it's a really simple way to do publish-subscribe kind of communication between loads of different devices. So I can just say, you know, I want to create a channel called Messages and then different devices, so phones or web browsers and Androids and iPhones and all the rest of it can kind of subscribe to these channels and then they can send JSON or any old kind of data up to these channels and down from these channels. So it's all kind of this cloud-based pub-sub mechanism 
which is good if you're building stuff, but it's also good if you're just wanting to play around with fun little demos of things, and it's super easy to get started with. So uh, that's my third pick. They're they're not an open source thing. They're a paid-for service, but they're pretty cool. So PubNub is my third pick. Awesome. Andrew, what are your picks? Got a few picks today. So the first, Well, so this past weekend, my wife and I were in Massachusetts for a family wedding, and we had a lot of fun. And um, one of the things we did on Saturday is we, we went to a museum that's called the Eric Carle Museum of Picture Book Art, and it's it was a museum started by the author of the Hungry Caterpillar book, and it has a, a gallery with his art, but there are also galleries with other picture book artists, and we thought it was a lot of fun. It was kind of a different kind of art museum than I've ever been to. It's in Amherst, Massachusetts. My second pick is Bose QC20 noise-canceling earphones. I'm not really a Bose fan, and I'm not really an earbud fan either, but these earphones just do such an excellent job of noise-canceling better than anything else I've used that I really love them for flying. And they have an over-the-ear sort of counterpart have like 10 dB more noise cancellation and they just they're kind of like magic if you've never tried them before and my last pick is an open source project that came out in the last few days that I just thought was really impressive and it's a uh, playgrounds for objective C so they're like the Swift playgrounds in Xcode 6 except they work for objective C and this guy claims to have written this entire thing in 12 hours which is really quite impressive if it's true I haven't gotten a chance to actually play with it myself yet, but I'm I'm planning to try it out. Uh, it looks pretty impressive. So that's Playgrounds for Objective-C. And those are my picks. Cool. Alondo, what are your picks? Uh, I have a few picks this week. Um, I was doing a, an attempt to code by train for the last week and a half, taking the train from here in North Carolina all the way out to Denver, Colorado and back. So my first pick is Amtrak.com. I really did enjoy traveling by train. It's not without incident. It's not perfect. But it really is a cool way to travel. I really enjoy the experience. It's, it's pretty awesome. My second pick is a conference that's coming up in February that's being put on by uh, Ray Wunderlich and uh, 360iDev called uh, RW DevCon. And uh, it's basically focused on programming tutorials. It's more of like a, a how-to and a lot more involved than what you typically get in conferences. I'm really looking forward to it. I've already registered, uh, and that is in February of next year in Washington, D.C., which was one of my stops on the train tour, as it were. And my third pick is uh, the Ultimate Ears Mini Boom speakers. There are a couple of Bluetooth speakers. I actually can get them individually. Um, I was looking for a better solution than my old Jambox for using Bluetooth to play podcasts and music and things while I'm around the house. And this one really, really provides a significant uh, increase in volume and clarity. I'm very pleased with them. So my third pick is Ultimate Ears Mini Boom Speakers. Those are my picks. Cool. Jane, what are your picks? All right, I've got a few picks. One's kind of an addendum to last week's episode. We talked about jobs and job hunting and that kind of thing. There's a stack exchange for the workplace, where if you have questions about interviewing, how to behave, what to do, it's pretty good info. So check out workplace.stackexchange.com. I'm kind of out of the, the workforce environment, but it's got some pretty good stuff if you're dealing with that type of thing. If we're talking about kind of view controllers and splitting up our code, there's one thing we didn't get to, but it's how do these objects talk to each other? You know, the common way in the Apple world is to do a, a delegate pattern, but that doesn't scale to every use case because you can only have one delegate at a time. So Objective-C, Object-C, I can't say it either. Object-C, I.O. has 
really good blog post on communication patterns, different ways you can communicate between the different objects, you know, doing KVO or notifications in addition to the delegates. So I'm going to recommend that blog post. Another thing, if you're listening to this episode, you might have a very plus-sized view controller. And how do you get from you know point A to point B? And one book that really helped me in general was Refactoring by Martin Fowler, which is one of the older, it's an older book. But it's really one of the more valuable skills you can learn in this industry is how to take mediocre code to make it good code and understand when to make that change. If I would have had this book starting out in my career, I would have saved 10 years of of making bad choices. So, but it's good stuff. So Refactoring by Martin Fowler. And he's got a newer book you talked about it on the Ruby Rogue show, right? Is it, is it an update? We talked about Refactoring Ruby Edition. So Okay. It's a, so it's I'm, a little bit different focus, but a lot of the same content. Okay. So that would be as good as well, I imagine. So those are my picks. Awesome. I've got a couple of picks. The first one is a book I've been rereading. It's called Virtual Freedom by Chris Ducker. And it's just a book about outsourcing, and it's super good. If you run your own business and you're looking for ways to kind of get more out of your time, then it's it's a terrific book, and it gives you some really good guidelines on how to do a lot of this stuff. So uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, if I'm picking that, I'm also going to be picking my virtual assistant, uh, Mandy. Uh, she's awesome. She does the editing for this show, writes all the show notes, uh, manages a lot of the other stuff related to it. So, yeah, lots of nice things to say about Mandy. You can find her company at devreps.com. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And then also, finally, I've been working. So I have to preface this by saying that I've used this company before and I didn't love the results, but I am much happier with the results this time. I'm using 99designs to have a design done for a conference that I'm organizing in February. And anyway, the designs coming back are just awesome. So go check it out if you need. This is for a website, so I, I think they have app design in there as well, but I haven't really looked. But 99designs is awesome. If you're curious, the conference is actually a JavaScript conference. It's going to be online. And the idea is is that you don't have to travel. You don't have to take time work off work. And uh, the cost will be low. And that means that it's online. So it's going to be in the evening, three nights a week for two weeks. And anyway, so if you're interested in that, you can find it at jsremoteconf.com. And yeah, it's just like it sounds. It's an online conference for JavaScript developers. And uh, we're pulling in a lot of the cool folks that are on JavaScript Jabber regularly or people that we've talked to on the show, among others. So it should be pretty awesome. So if you do JavaScript, I know that's not necessarily this crowd, but I wanted to pick 99designs because I'm happy with it. And so I may as well mention the conference while I'm at it. Jay, what are your picks? Okay, so I'm going to reiterate the earlier pick about using ObjCIO as a great resource in particular, the very first issue of the website dealt specifically with the subject that we talked about today. So if you want to learn more about this, then that's an excellent place to start. Let's see. So for my other picks, I'm going to go with a one of them is a book that I've been finding very useful recently. It's actually available on the uh, iTunes bookstore. It's by Luke Robalski, and it's called Mobile and Multi-Device Designs, Lessons Learned. And it's a collection of some of the design decisions that he's made over the years doing both web and design of mobile apps. And there's some great, great insight in this book about how you should design your applications in a way that they, you know, remain functional yet intuitive and um, 
and and how you can scale those experiences based on the screen size of your device. My last pick is actually, I guess, a one-two combo. So I do a lot of work building apps that leverage web services. So I'm constantly looking for tools that let me kind of investigate the web service and see what data is being passed back and forth. And, and two utilities that I found to be invaluable for that part of my job, one's called Rested and the other one's called Visual JSON. Rested lets me kind of formulate calls against the web service and get responses back. Visual JSON also has that capability, but what I like about Visual JSON is it takes these JSON results and kind of displays them in a way that makes them a lot more usable. So instead of just being a big dump of text, it actually kind of reformats and allows me to expand and contract different parts of the result sets. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Jay. If people want to get a hold of you or find out more about this topic, uh, what are the best ways for them to do that? Okay. So on Twitter, I'm Jay Thrash, J-A-Y-T-H-R-A-S-H. And I do have a blog at jthrash.com. Uh, I don't <laughs> don't write on it as often as I, as I should be, but from time to time, I'll post stuff there that is mostly these days is related to the various talks and presentations I've given it either conferences or at our local Cocoa Heads group. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming. Uh, we'll wrap the show and we'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at MadGlory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash forum. 